In today's regulatory episode, Rebecca sits down with returning guest Mitch Roth, who is the founder of Roth Jackson and fellow founding member on the Enterprise Communications Advocacy Coalition, which you can learn more about at ecaccoalition.com. Together, they review key regulatory decisions and FCC updates that are expected to affect the voice channel and legal business communications this year. Welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we bring truth and shed light across the brand identity and the communications industry. I'm Rebecca Johnson, founder and CEO of Numerical, and I'll be co-hosting today's session with Mitch Roth, founding member of Roth Jackson. So while we have day jobs uh, in those two roles, we are also very active in our coalition, which is called the Enterprise Communications Advocacy Coalition, focused on FTC, FCC, and state matters. So welcome back, Mitch. It's so good to have you on Tuesday Talks again. Great to be here, Rebecca. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So we definitely have a lot to update since the last time we talked. I think it was close to the end of uh, last year, at least in the last quarter. And um, just when we think that the federal government is going to take a break over the holidays, we think again. (laughs) They don't ever stop. Um, So today we're going to cover really kind of some activities that are happening with the FCC, the FTC, and then also industry standards. Uh, We don't often provide some of those updates, but I think it's important for us to track uh, what's happening uh, as it relates to stir shaking because, you know, the standards are just so intertwined with the Trace Act and with rulemaking from the FCC. So it all just kind of goes hand in hand. So I thought let's, <laughs> yeah, it, it just doesn't. Um, and I also feel like there's new characters that get added underneath this little family of regulations um, who weren't necessarily, you know, as regulated. And now these new rules and things come down the pipeline and, and it really stretches and expands companies to be and do things that they never did before. But for preservation of staying within their businesses, it's it's real things that they're facing um, that they have to address. We, we absolutely cannot ignore uh, when a ruling comes down. But that's why the ECAC exists. Um, and we try to advocate and speak on behalf of uh, the impacts that these proposed rules would have ultimately on enterprises. I mean, this, this whole infrastructure exists for communications for really businesses to consumers, um, not just teenagers <laughs> communicating back and forth. So I want to start first with the FCC. And uh, the ECAC did um, uh, talk about this, and it was on the fourth and fifth uh, notice for proposed rulemaking on the gateway provider requirements for robocall mitigation. So we did provide um, some uh, reply comments to that, um, and we also did a deep dive uh, Tuesday talk. But I thought I'd just give you an opportunity to at least update from what you're hearing from gateway providers um, since that's been published. Obviously, no activity, no rules have been proposed, but it's still a topic. Yeah, Rebecca, you and I have been all over this. We probably talk about this issue uh, probably once a week, if not more frequently than that. Um, But right, the FCC had uh, the fourth and fifth notice of proposed rulemaking. And 
what they tried to do or what they're trying to do or proposing to do is uh, to, to get gateway providers to get involved in the blocking game. And uh, the gateway provider is generically considered to be the first carrier that touches the call in the United States. Um, and what the FCC wants to do is require them to block calls based on reasonable analytics that the call is highly likely to be illegal. Reasonable analytics that the call is highly likely to be illegal. What the heck does that mean? And how do you figure that out? Um, we, and that was the, uh, the essence of uh, the comments I know that ECAC uh, submitted, which was basically, hey, for one thing, we don't think the gateway providers need to be the ones who are blocking calls. The terminating providers should be the one, ones who are blocking calls. And in fact, they're the ones who are, who, who are required to block calls as, as of now. But also the commission can't just throw it out there and say, use reasonable analytics to figure out what calls are legal or illegal. It's gonna result in, in a hodgepodge of different standards inact or inconsistent standards amongst different carriers, amongst different groups, amongst different enterprises. And no one's gonna have any sense of, um, of reliability in knowing what calls are gonna be blocked and what calls are not gonna be blocked. So, so that was one of the, um, that, that's the big issue that came out of that uh, rulemaking. And, and I know ECAC and a few of my other clients were, um, participated in the rulemaking and said, nope, it doesn't work like that FCC. First of all, we need to have the blocking done at the terminating carriers and we need more, um, we, we need more input and information from the FCC as to which calls are gonna be blocked just so that there's consistency across the spectrum. And I know some of the counter argument to that is, and I, and I think the spirit of what the FCC is trying to do here is to just keep the calls from ever traversing the network. And I, and I think that's a great idea. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that, hey, we would just prefer that these calls just never enter the network. But it's putting a huge onus on to the gateway provider to be that gatekeeper. Um, they're just really providing the way. Now they must keep <laughs> be the gatekeeper uh, for that traffic. And, and I think that's where it feels unbalanced between what's being requested and required of the terminating carriers versus what the gateway provider. And, and there is an element of unbalanced uh, rulemaking. It's almost like more of a slap of the hand over on the gateway provider. And they're like, whoa, I'm just showing up to the game here. Um, I know you had some thoughts on that. No, and, and it gets even worse for gateway providers. Don't forget about the part about the KYC uh, components where uh, the F FCC wants the uh, gateway providers to KYC, in essence, the, the call originator or the originating carrier, despite the fact that that person or that entity who the gateway provider does, probably doesn't even know who it is, um, but that entity is could be four, five, six hops uh, removed from the gateway provider. So there was a lot of comments and a lot of participation in the industry regarding that issue. Um, it just didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to require the gateway providers to KYC the originating carrier um, when they have no reason to know who that originating carrier is. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think too, we still haven't, this to me just always goes back and I say this a lot, so maybe it sound like a broken record here, but we've put out a lot of different rules or say we. The FCC. I, I'm on board, you know, with some with some of the things that are coming out. So I, I feel like I'm a part of it. But you know, they've put out a lot of rules. They've put out guidance, direction, best practices, 
And I still feel like we haven't allowed for all the good work that's already been done up to this point to actually take effect and then see how effective it's being before we go to the extreme of the gateway provider side. That's that's just my personal opinion and, and how I see it. And I wish that we would be patient and allow for some of the good work to actually come to fruition and then make the right decisions on what else is missing because maybe that's not even a pain point once we implement the KYC that we have at, you know, at, at, at the originating point too um, for those who are putting traffic onto the network. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of work that we could still implement and this might just be a mute point. Yeah, well, and I think the gateway providers are the easy targets for the FCC. Um, you know, they're, they're not the tier one carriers, they're not the tier two carriers, they're probably not even tier three carriers, and they don't have much representation before the FCC, and there's, there's thousands of them out there, and the FCC is just, just trying to uh, get a handle on them, and, and the larger carriers, the tier ones and the tier twos, are pointing the fingers at saying, hey, don't look at us, it's all the gateway problems, or all these problems are caused by the gateway providers, so, so go pick on them, and it's really just not a fair no. So let's move on to the uh, sixth further notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, I wonder how high this will go. <laughs> um, now, this is one that's getting a lot of attention. Uh, there's been some recent ex partes filed as well. Um, so just just for those who, who may not be aware, they've heard of zip code 603, 607, 608. Um, so in the sixth further notice of proposed rulemaking, the commission sought comment on potential costs and benefits associated with phasing out SIP code 603, which represent a decline of, of the call, uh, for purposes of immediate notification of call blocking requirement and the burden, if any, on small businesses for implementing this. Now, SIP code 603 is a standard. It's over in the world where the geniuses write the standards for how we have all this interoperability on communications. So one good note is that the commission adopted an order on reconsideration uh, on December and released on December 14th um, that granted U.S. telecoms requests to allow voice service providers originating IP networks the flexibility to use SIP code 603 already in existence, right, to meet the immediate notification requirement beginning January 1st of this year. Um, at that time, the commission uh, also granted the request to clarify that the immediate notification requirements apply to all analytics-based blocking and do not apply to non-analytics-based blocking programs and that the blocked calls list requirements applies only to opt-in or opt-out analytics based blocking and not to other blocking programs. Clear as mud, <laughs> absolutely clear as mud. Um, this just comes down to, um, gosh, I, I, I could have sworn I filed comments on this one years ago. I feel like I did um, just individually before we, we developed the ECAC. And at its root core, I just never thought it was a good idea to notify bad guys that, hey, that number you're using, yeah, it's not going to work. We're blocking it. We just want to let you know so that you can rotate another number, maybe give that a whirl and see if you can get through. And we'll just keep <laughs> notifying you and you'll just keep dodging me. I know I wasn't alone in viewing, like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. 
Um, but the FCC got wind from somebody else that that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden this pops up and we're like, whoa, we're actually considering this. Uh, and this proposed, you know, notice for proposed rulemaking, this is, this is real. Um, and what came out of that is uh, basically on layman's terms here. The proposal of a 607 and a 608 error code, which is blocking a call based on analytics or blocking a call based on the consumer marking it blocked. I think that's a privacy issue. I would rather not see that. Uh, but focusing on the analytics, um, what this means is that carriers will be taking in the analytics that they use today, and it's the same reasonable analytics that we hear talked about a lot, uh, to block a call. But instead of just blocking it and the originator not really knowing that it was being blocked on analytics, we're going to see this increase in 603. And I do believe that there are other options uh, that a carrier might use 603. It might not be related to analytics, but it's going to be, you know, brought up underneath that error code. And I know from Numerical's perspective, what we hear from enterprises coming to us is that they saw an increase in blocked calls. So we got to believe that the carriers are implementing this today because they had to meet the January 1st, 2022 deadline. U.S. Telecom did a great job um, with regards to the petition of, hey, can we can we please just use the 603? Because we don't even have a standard for 607 and 608. You're asking for a lot. Um, but um, from what I've seen in the recent expertise, I think that that's going to be what the carriers are looking for. Can we can we just continue on with 603 since it's already in the network and we've got it up and running and not have to implement 607, 608, which means the standards have to come up with something. So I'll just pause on that. I know you've got clients coming to you as well uh, with questions around that. Yeah, and you know, to your point, Rebecca, I mean, 603 is already there. Um, companies have been, have been using it. Um, kind of get the feeling that um, someone in Washington thought that you can just click your heels and, and come up with 607, 608 real quickly. And, and the, you know, what I'm hearing in the industry with my clients is that um, it's not that easy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and as you can imagine, a lot of money uh, to develop the technology to be able to accommodate that, um, uh, that er those error codes. So we'll see what happens. In the meantime, uh, the FCC has, uh, is going along with the uh, 603 um, for the time being. Um, my guess is, is that they will mandate the use of 607, 608. It just may take a while until they get everybody on board. And I, and I think if we don't make really good progress on just being able to leverage and continue to use the 603, then I think we have to bring up the topic of conversation for consumer privacy um, and maybe hear from the consumer groups um, of how do we feel if a consumer blocks a call and that specific code is sent back to the originator. And I think it begs some privacy questions um, for that. Maybe the consumer doesn't want them to know that they've blocked them. Mitch, you're in the, the world of privacy. I don't know if that's something that you've thought about. We don't talk about it really, but. I'm sure my kids don't want me to know that they've blocked them. <laughs> There's definitely some individuals, that's so true. I'm sorry, I just missed your call. I don't know what's happening. Um, I also, um, you know, even if we do, so this is one of the, the concepts I have. So if you look down into the rules to the 603 or the call blocking, the gateway provider, the FCC has stated very clearly that anybody in the call path, they want to participate and join in on the call blocking. Okay. So now uh, it's not going to be good enough to just get back a 603 or whatever 600 code that you want to use. 
Um, if the enterprise is being blocked and they're a legal entity and they feel that they've been wronged by being blocked because we don't know what analytics that you're using to determine why to block me, how do you figure out in the path who's the one that blocked the call? And what we're going to find ourselves in, we already have trace back, is we're going to be in a trace forward. Did you block my call? No. Well, who, who go down the line. Did you block my call? Is that like, is this what we're really going to have to do for enterprises to be able to identify who blocked my call and why? It's not enough to just be told your call got blocked because of analytics. Right. And this intertwines with the gateway, gateway provider issue, right, that we were talking about. Um, and to your point that it, it's all intertwined. Uh, when you start talking about the trace stack, because if the gateway provider is the one that's going to be blocking the calls and not the terminating carrier or someone uh, closer to the terminating carrier, the originating carrier and the call initiator really is going to have no way of knowing uh, who blocked the call and why those calls were blocked um, without doing that you know, trace forward. I'll let you coin that term, but yeah, you're right, without, without doing that. People start using it. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'll take, I don't know. Is that really exciting that I can take credit for terms in the telcos? I really got to get a more inciting life. <laughs> I, I think though, um, the other point that I want to make about the 607, 608, if we look at just from, you know, where it's originating from and what the FCC is looking at is they're still focused on unwanted and illegal. Uh, and unwanted and illegal are still terms that we're trying to figure out how do we define in the use of reasonable analytics. So I just like the more decisions we keep making on top of a foundation, we refuse to define what it is, we just create more issues, more issues for the industry, more issues. I mean, even the carriers who are going to be doing this blocking, they're going to have to deal with requests that come in of, hey, why did you block my call? I don't really know this, this system marked 603. I mean, what are they, really, they, they going to be able to investigate this, even determine it's, it's an algorithm. I don't know why it blocked you. How do I get this unblocked, you know, for a future? And then what if you're using a, a provider who does routing? One day your call's routing through a particular path that does the blocking. The next day it's routing through another path that doesn't use the same analytics that determined that you should be blocked. I, I just... I just feel like this opens a can of worms for more um, where the carriers think or the FCC thinks it's visibility. We're just getting less visibility into what's really going on and the decision points in the network that's being used to to deliver or not deliver calls. And that's why it's so important or the issue is so important um, in the context of the gateway provider rulemaking that the FCC provide the clear standards as to why calls are being blocked because only to require blocking based on reasonable and uh, analytics that the call is highly likely to be illegal um, is not going to cut it. And it's just going to require, it's just going to result in one carrier, not, not um, or one carrier blocking the call, but then that call just rolling over to another carrier and so on and so on until the call gets through. To me, this is why going back to letting some of the activities that we've already started down the path of verifying, you know, if we implement the identification, implement shaken, and I get that there are still some carriers that can't implement that, but where there are some out-of-band solutions as well too, if we can start putting identity into the communication infrastructure, then this whole notification of what happens to calls becomes a whole lot easier to solve. Um, we're doing all of these little, just throwing darts on a board to try to stop the bad guys. And it's not really creating something sustainable within the ecosystem. Let's establish identity. Trace that, you were great. 
Awesome. Let's implement what the overall objective is for that. Let's see how things shake out and stop just doing these little onesies, twosies. I just, I just think we're going to create a nightmare for us to be able to support. Maybe it keeps you a job as a lawyer. Maybe that's a good part of it. <laughs> so uh, I want to move on to um, uh, the ECAC's petition for a declaratory ruling. This is all you, Mitch. Um, on and, and tie it kind of into the overall privacy uh, activities as well too um, for what you're doing there. So ECAC filed a petition for declaratory ruling to, um, to preempt the uh, Florida tele, um, telemarketing statute, uh, the, the mini TCPA out of Florida. And the grounds for doing so was the FCC's order back in 2003 when they created the, um, um, when they, promulgated rules implementing the TCPA, which included uh, do not call, call abandonment, things like that. And the FCC specifically in that order preempted state laws that were less restrictive than the FCC's rules, but they left open the rules, state rules that are more restrictive than the TCPA rules. And what the FCC actually said was, while they're not ruling on it now, um, any state that fought that enacts laws, rules, regulations that are more restrictive than the TCPA, quote unquote, almost certainly would be preempted by the FCC and then invited um, anybody who, who's aggrieved by a more restrictive rule to file a petition for declaratory ruling with the FCC, um, seeking declaratory ruling that that more restrictive rule is in fact uh, preempted. So there was a lot of talk last year, I think it was last year, last year when uh, Florida um, promulgated a um, or enacted a, a law which was significantly more restrictive than the FCC's rules and regulations. Um, it, you know, the, a lot of the ambiguity in the TCPA world had been around the, uh, the, the definition of automatic telephone dialing system. Um, Florida came out, Florida's law was significantly more restrictive than that, even on a good day, um, and basically preempted any law which or any uh, call which is. Um, dialed uh, automatically or, or, or randomly. I, I don't remember the specific uh, language, but suffice it to say it was specifically more restrictive or significantly more restrictive than the uh, TCPA's restrictions on um, automatic telephone dialing system. There are also probably half a dozen other um, areas where the Florida law was more restrictive than the um, FCC. So as I alluded to, um, ECAC filed a petition with the TCP, I'm sorry, with the FCC to preempt uh, the Florida rule. That was filed back in July or August of 2021. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, depending on how cynical you are, uh, absolutely nothing has happened. Um, notwithstanding the fact that um, the FCC has a regulatory obligation to promptly uh, put uh, requests for declaratory rulings out for public notice. Then they can sit on it and do nothing, but they shouldn't be sitting on it and doing nothing before they put it out for public notice. So just last week, um, I corresponded with the FCC, basically inquired and saying, "Hey, what's going on here? Uh, this has been this has been uh, this has been on, on on file for a good six months or so. We haven't seen anything. When is this going to be? When is this going to go out for for public notice?" And I sent that correspondence last week. I've not heard back from them, um, so we'll see now. I will tell you that back in 2003, 2004, 2005 time period, there were a lot of petitions that were filed by various um, uh, trade groups and trade associations 
uh, seeking preemption of various state laws. Um, and those were never ruled on by the F FCC. So we're starting to see a pattern here. They don't like these preemption petitions. Um, I filed one of them in 2008 or so, it never got ruled on. Uh, so I figured what the heck, I'll file another one and see if we can get some action. Um, ironically, since Florida was the state law that was, uh, that was the target of our petition, there was a lot of talk during the Florida legislative session this, uh, this session that it was going to be uh, amended um, to address some of the, the issues that, that I raised and, and others have raised. Um, that bill never got out, of, uh, got out of committee, never got presented to the governor. So the law, which we were, uh, which was the subject of, of, of our petition, uh, remains on the books um, and, and is still out there. In the meantime, there's probably two or three other states. I think Oklahoma is one. Um, um, there are several others who also enacted many TCPA laws, which which also go above and beyond what the uh, what the FCC had uh, promulgated in the TCPA regulations. So those laws are subject. Or, or potentially or could be subject to petitions for preemption. So kind of have to wait and see what happens. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. Like I said before, the, uh, the, the FCC has not ruled on these petitions before, although they have specifically invited these petitions. So uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to see what happens. Does it help to at least continue to have a record of that, of, of that activity, even if it's not moving the needle anywhere? Yeah, I think I, I think so. Um, I think you always want to create um, as much of an administrative record as, as you can. Um, you know, if, if down the road, if, if it ever winds up uh, in litigation, um, you need to have that record, uh, administrative record, in front of you, um, so you can seek the redress of courts if, if you need to. Yep. So I want to um, kind of end with um, I don't know if it's ending on a good note, but I think it needs to be discussed. Is um, all of the enforcement action that is a result of, uh, you know, all this activity around Stir Shaken, the Robocall mitigation database. And I think it's important to see that the FCC means business in this case, right? They're, they're, they're not just sweet little requests of, hey, I'd like if everybody could just do what we say. Um, they're showing up. Uh, with enforcement, and I think there's some lessons that the our listeners need to take from this, both from the FCC, the FTC, and the state AGs. I mean, everybody's involved on this, and you as a service provider or you know the enterprise or the call center that's delivering the calls, you could get hit up by one or all three um, based on your activities kind of centered around the same action. So the most recent one, uh, from the FCC uh, was a proposed uh, of civil forfeiture of $45 million for allegedly making a, just a little over 500,000 illegal robocalls to consumers. Um, and of those calls, about half were made to consumers on the Do Not Call Registry. And it's like, are we really still here, folks? Are we really still doing this? The calls were related to a false claim. You know, um, of course, we see, we, we're still seeing COVID-19 kind of stuff coming through. But that number, I call it out, is significant. Half a million calls is not much. You can get half a million calls out and, and you know, before your coffee in the morning. So we've got to be really careful of, you know, who we are delivering calls for. If you're a BPO, if you're a carrier, you don't want to be participating in that kind of activity. 
when we look to um, the F- FTC, um, they the FTC issued uh, refunds totaling more than 1.8 million to consumers defrauded. Um, this one was by LifeSwitch, um, and it had to do with deceptive uh, medical alert telemarketing scheme. And I always remind people the FTC is there for unfair and deceptive practices. So we've got to be careful about what we're really communicating. Don't fudge it. Be truthful. Be honest in your communications. Make sure that you have consent. Uh, I mean, my background was on regulatory compliance for um, TSR, TCPA, and Can Spam Act. And I would argue every time it was quite simple. It was really quite simple to stay uh, in compliance. It's when you start to get maybe a little greedy and you start pushing the truth on what you're really doing, don't do it, just you're gonna get in trouble. But um, there's multiple uh, of these examples too from the FTC and the messages, they're, they're serious. They're very serious about coming after this and shutting it down. Um, and then we also see on state AGs um, with regards to, I would say collaboration, unification of the attorneys generals with regards to how they're going after the robocall. Um, and they're just, you know, making themselves known that we're all in agreement here in alignment that we're going to protect the citizens from fraudulent, you know, robocallers. And a lot of times these are legit businesses. It's, it's not like it's often overseas, you know, uh, you can't ever find who they are. No, these are businesses right here in the U.S. Um, that maybe they didn't realize that they were doing something nefarious. It's just too easy to set up you know, your outbound communications. So be aware of what you're doing. If you're going to get into communication space, it's heavily regulated and there are a lot of rules. Um, but if you stay on the straight and narrow, I think you'll be just fine. Uh, Mitch, I know that you, you, you kind of help clients, uh, in this space as well. Do you have any thoughts or words of wisdom, uh, for them and when they enter into this market? Well, they have to, you know, we talked about this uh, offline, you know, there's a lot of law enforcement out there attorney generals, FTC, FCC, traceback group, there needs to be accountability, there needs to be transparency um, and and policies and having a system in place uh, in order to respond to and address any issues, concerns, et cetera, that a law enforcement group may have. And that includes subpoenas, that includes traceback requests, things like that. Yep, can't hide and don't ignore. (laughs) Those would not be good choices. So I just want to close with um, the Enterprise Communications Advocacy Coalition that Mitch and I both uh, represent uh, serves as a coalition to support the interests of enterprise communications in this you know, highly regulated space. Uh, so if you are looking to get more involved on the Hill uh, with these types of matters, either directly or uh, speaking on your behalf, um, we would definitely um, love to have you join us, answer any questions that you may have. Um, but this is this is an area that needs representation, and that's what we're focused on. So I'd like to thank Mitch for joining us again on a Tuesday talk, and all of you as well. Uh, our next episode is going to be Tuesday, March 29th. We'll be joined by Jerry Christensen, Vice President of Business Development and Partnerships at UML, to discuss predictions and best practices for safe voice communications and what to watch for in 2022 and beyond. We hope to see you there.